morning. Uh, we will be continuing our study in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, if you do, we'll be starting here in Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 4. Uh, please join me in prayer. Our Father, this is your world. May we not forget that the message of Genesis is that this is your world and you are creator here. You didn't need to create. You didn't need us. You weren't lacking anything. But in your unimaginable grace and mercy, you bestowed life onto us and to this place. And Lord, in our breaking of it, you are more gracious in sending your son to fix it, to pay the price for our sins and to make us whole. I pray that, that we wouldn't see Genesis 1 and 2 and, and these other sections as distant or far from the reality of uh, even our New Testament, but that we would see uh, that it is the, the necessary lens to understand the rest of the story and the amazing things you have for us here and the amazing things you have done in creating everything good. So, Lord Jesus, please bless this time. Please send us your spirit. Uh, and may we may glorify you and enjoy you more through it. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so we're here in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Um, something that's so important as you approach any story or anything is to understand uh, what the story that you are listening to is. Uh, some Halloweens ago, many, many decades ago, uh, very famous, famously, uh, the War of the Worlds was read on the radio and people tuned in not knowing what they were listening to, which chronicles an alien invasion, uh, thinking they hear a live news report, people freak out, and, and it goes really, really, really poorly for them, right? Because they didn't know what they were listening to, right? We need to know when we approach Genesis and we approach this text, what we are listening to. Uh, and you need to know that, that as Moses, the author, takes us from Genesis 1, the creation of everything, uh, over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years to Abraham uh, and, and what God is going to do through Abraham, he is taking us through these 11 chapters very, 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 very quickly. And so you have to know what he's doing as he tells us this story. If you've ever had the pleasure or disdain of watching a Ken Burns documentary. He has these awesome, uh, lengthy, uh, I, I love history, so I love these Ken Burns documentaries, and I can, I can sit and I can watch them all day long. Uh, I think the Civil War one is like, I don't know, like 14 or 15 hours, right? The reality is he's telling these epic stories, whether it's about baseball or about World War II, he's telling these epic stories in just a few hours, which means he's being selective in the things that he is showing, which means that even he, as a guy who's making a documentary, though he is reporting history, is doing so and telling a story and showing us particular things about that history. Moses, in these 11 chapters, writes the whole of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, but in these 11 chapters, as he races from the creation of everything to Abraham, even spends two chapters on the creation of everything, as we'll see here today, as he's racing along this thing, is showing us things. This isn't just history. It is history. And I'll, and I'll show you how I, how I think that. Uh, but you need to understand that it is history that's proclaiming a theological message. When I say theology, I mean something about God, and theology done right is something about God as it relates to us as people. And so as he's telling us this story, he's trying to tell us and, and give us what will turn out to be the basis for our understanding of absolutely everything, the gospel. 
the reality of the gospel is that God made everything good. And when God in his holiness and his grace made everything good, there was nothing bad or wrong in that good. In fact, last week as we looked at Genesis 1, we just heard him say over and over again, and God made this and it was good, and God made this and he saw that it was good, and God made this and it was good. And today he's going to continue to create, because next week we get to where things go south and, you know, there we are, which is, by the way, a family-style service if you'll be with us. So I will be aware that Genesis 3 will be a family-style service, uh, so I will handle it in a family-style way. But that's where we're headed next week. You, you see this thing on the horizon, you're like, oh, so Genesis 1 and 2, that's the short, good part of the Bible, and then everything else is kind of hard and weird until we get Jesus, and then it's kind of hard and weird some more until we get to the book of Revelation when he puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. But, but what Moses is doing is he's setting up the story. You have to understand, if you don't understand anything about the rest of the Bible, that God made everything good. That God in his holiness and his wonder and his sovereignty and his glory made everything good. And as we'll see next week, we broke it. Adam and Eve are the ones who break it. But even as we see just in the onset of the brokenness that they create, that God in his grace and his mercy makes a promise that's so significant that people call it the pre-gospel, right? Genesis 3.15. And so Moses is setting the stage. And so we don't just need to see this as just history. It's, it's theology. It's telling us something about God. And it's something about God that if we don't understand, we won't understand the rest of the story of the Bible. Okay? So here we are. Uh, in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, uh, through the whole of these 11 chapters, we also find ourselves with this, as I, before I even say it, here's my, here's my uh, preamble. We find ourselves with a twin problem, uh, and that is a twin problem of theology and apologetics. Uh, apologetics is not, uh, it's like Plato's apology. It's, it's not he's saying he's sorry, it's a defense, right? Apologetics is the defense of the faith. We have a defense problem, but we also have this theological problem. There's so much theology going on in these few verses. There's so much to unpack and so much to look at. at just what the Bible tells us about who God is and what he has done in the world, that we also find ourselves faced with the fact that we live in a world that radically disagrees with all of the assumptions we make about this text. And so on one side, we have a, a theology issue. I have to tell you what it says about God and his glory. And two, I have to help you understand how to talk about your coworker at the water cooler when you say, what did you learn about on Sunday? Oh, you're a Christian. What did you do at church? Well, this is what we did at church as the church gathered, if we're being very technical. Okay, so here we are. And um, in what may have become uh, a hallmark of my own preaching style, I will read three words, and then we'll stop and we'll talk about it. Uh, and then we will go on from there. Uh, these are the generations. Why do we have to stop here? Because this is our hint. This is our hint as we read the rest of Genesis. Uh, people sometimes, Christians in particular, because if you're not a Christian, you probably don't think any of this stuff is true, and I aim to show you that it is. Uh, but, but those who don't sit believing the Bible is the Bible are going to say, well, you know what? Well, I'm okay with this Abraham idea. Yeah, we know about Mesopotamia. We know about Sumer. We know about these Egyptian things that happen. Okay, I'm okay there. But Genesis 1 through 11, uh, it's outside of the box for how I understand the world to work. And, and here's, here's, here's the deal, right? I am a Bible-believing Christian. I believe this whole thing to be true. And no, I don't see talking snakes every day. I don't. Yes, the talking snake in Genesis 3, this is an abnormal weird day for everybody, right? I'm okay there. 
But I am a supernaturalist. I think things do happen that are, you know, supernatural, abnormal. Now, people who want to do that want to say, you know what, Moses or whoever, it's Moses. Uh, I've talked about it last week. We talked about it more. Uh, you can listen to it from last week or you can ask. Um, there's a lot of stuff that really points to uh, Moses, including Egyptian loan words, uh, 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 post, uh, now I'm starting a lecture on why Moses wrote it. He wrote it, okay? And we can talk about it. So I'm not just saying he wrote it, accept it. Like, I would, I would, if, you have, if this is an issue for you, I'd love to dialogue about it. Don't get me wrong, I just, the clock is moving. And there's these verses I have to deal with. Okay, so back to these three, four words. These are the generations. Now, these words appear again and again and again and again in Genesis. In fact, these are the generations uh, help us understand when something big is about to change. So we get, these are the generations here. We get it elsewhere. We get it a bunch of times in Genesis 1 through 11. And then we get it in, uh, with the Abraham story. We get it with Isaac. We get it with Jacob. These are the generations. Okay, What this shows us as we read Genesis 1 through 11, in the mind of the author, and he's right, by the way, uh, this is history. He is not trying to tell some little story. He is telling us history. He's recording for it, us, and do we see it? These are the generations. And, and that word is our, is our clue, uh, and it has some significance in the original, but, but you can just see it. If you're in the ESV, it's going to be these are the generations. So these are the generations that have in the earth and uh, when they were created, in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, here's our theology, and here's our apologetic issue right here. Uh, the guys, mostly Germans for whatever reason, and a, a pretty significant Frenchman, uh, several hundred years ago, and they started reading the Bible saying, look, there's a bunch of inconsistencies, there's problems. Look, if you read Genesis 1, and they, they'll sit you down with an English Bible and say, not them, because they're old and German and dead now, 200 years later, uh, but their theories are still pervasive, and they say, look, I'll show it to you. Genesis 1, they use the word God, okay? They don't use the word Lord. They use the word God. So in, in Hebrew, it's Elohim, and it's, uh, well, if we're being technical. So we're in Seattle, and here's, here's my caveat about the word the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D is the proper name for God. Uh, Jews tend to pronounce it Adonai, which also means Lord. That's why we have the word Lord here. Um, there's a lot of ways that people have said it, and, and Jewish folks for, for hundreds and hundreds of years have not pronounced this name, Yahweh. Uh, we as Protestants do like to pronounce the name Yahweh, and there's two big problems with it. One, we're not really sure that's how you pronounce it. We're about, I have on, a, on good authority, we're about 60 to 80% sure that's how you would actually pronounce it. You're free in Christ to say it, but here's the thing you have to understand. We are a stone's throw away from Wedgwood. Wedgwood is the number one place for Jewish people in the state of Washington to live. We want them to know who the Messiah is. His name is Jesus. We want them to understand, and if you're here today and you come from a Jewish background, I want you to know and understand, yes, we absolutely believe the Old Testament to be true, and we believe that the Old Testament is telling us about God's Messiah who's going to come and right all the wrongs, who's going to wipe the tears from all the eyes, who's going to do the Isaiah 53 work of bearing our sins and iniquities on his shoulders so we can be right and made whole with God, the Isaiah 65 work of the new heavens and the new earth, 
wiping every tear from every eye, putting Genesis back, getting us back to this Genesis 2 reality of all things being good, and we believe his name is Jesus. And we'll show you all day long from the Old Testament, right in Hebrew even if you want, that he is Messiah who's come to save us, forgive us, and even do the promises of Isaiah 9 of taking the good news of the God of the Bible to the Gentiles. That's us. And so we want to be careful then. A, we don't know Yahweh is the right pronunciation. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that there are people, if you're trying to share the gospel with them, if they are Jewish and you start saying Yahweh, it, it, the, literally sometimes people like plug their ears and freak out because they think his name is holy. They, they have a reverence for God in his holiness. And I'm not saying you need to do this. We can say Lord, we can say God. You'll even see this sometimes if you're reading Jewish material. It'll be G-D instead of G-O-D because they think his name is holy. So there's names we can use. Hashem, Adonai, my favorite, and a great name for a Christian progressive metal band. Uh, the Tetragrammaton, um, it just means four letters. We can spell it, yod heh vav He. There's any number of things. We just need to be aware of our context because you know what the Bible tells us? We have this good news in Romans that there is a time that is coming and there is going to be a mass revival amongst the Jews and they will come to see that Jesus is Messiah and it's coming. I have it on good authority. Paul says so. Romans, check it out. I'm excited for that day. I'm bummed for that day because that's apparently the day that the time the Gentiles is sealed up. Uh, but that's also the time when we're going to see a massive, massive revival amongst Jewish people who are going to read the Torah and see that Jesus is Messiah. That's a good day. We're going to be ready for it. And, and you've got to be ready to tell, I mean, especially if you have someone who believes that the first 78% of the Bible is true. Don't you want to be able to connect the dots for them to show them that when in Psalm 110, uh, the Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, says to Adonai, which is the name for God, when God says to God, sit in my right hand, the most quoted Old Testament uh, work in the New Testament, don't you want to say, look, look what it says. I'll tell you who he is. His name is Jesus. Praise the Lord. It's a, I mean, you want to meet someone who's excited about the Old Testament. I've had the, the pleasure of meeting several people who have been converted this way. They are excited about Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament. And, and, and so I say all that. I say, now let's talk about God, Lord, Lord God here. Now here's what else is amazing. Genesis 1, we use this word verbal fiat, which is just a fancy way to say that he spoke it and it was. That's what he did in Genesis 1. And he said, there'll be day, and there'll be night. And he said, let there be light, and he does all these things. And he just tells everything what to do. It's only imperative. Do this. Be light. And, and we almost have trouble capturing how to command something into being when you're reading Genesis 1 and why it's even a little clunky. But here there's a shift. Here there's a shift. This is Hashem. This is the Lord. This is his covenant name to his people. We are Christians who believe God in his grace and mercy has revealed himself to people. We are not deists. We are not Stephen Hawkingists. We don't think he's far off. We don't think he's distant. We don't think he's remote. We know he exists, and we know that we know a God who reveals himself. And as Christians, we especially know that he reveals himself because he's done so perfectly in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you want to you wanna get in here. You want to get in this Old Testament and say, well, yeah, I want to hear about Jesus. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. He's the one who rights the wrongs. And he is the, the, the ultimate uh, expression of God's self-revelation to people. And this God, Jesus Christ, did so by becoming a human being like you so that he could relate to you, so he could live the life that you should live in light of the holiness and the goodness of the God of the universe who dies in your place for your sins because we have all sinned. If you don't know Jesus, you need to know that like the rest of us, you have sinned against God and others and God in his grace and mercy because he is so holy as we'll see here in Genesis because he's so holy we can't get to him he had to come down and get to us he came down to get to us you can't earn God's love you can't earn a place in his kingdom he had to come down and rescue you for it this is God's clearest revelation of himself not only did he live, but he dies on the cross, the only sinless man who ever lives in his holiness and perfection and in his infinite wonder, the one who made everything, the one who spoke it all into existence, died for us for his glory and for our joy that we might be forgiven and live. And this is the gospel. Verse 5. Oh, man, this one skips me. Okay. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, now you look at that and you say, so what? This is a code. What? Yeah, it's a code. Look at me with Genesis 3.18. If you've got a Bible, you can look right over. So 3.18 is in the middle of sort of this pronouncement of cursings and blessings and things that happen as a result of the fall. And in 18, it says this, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. Well, what do we hear in Genesis 1? What are we going to hear in Genesis 2? They had the trees to eat from they had to eat from. Moses is giving us a code. He's going to tell us some stuff right now, but he wants you to know the fall hasn't happened yet. He wants you, you, you to read this and say, oh, things haven't broke yet. Unfortunately, they're about to, but we'll get there next week. So verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God, there he is again, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the ground. Ground. This word means, this is the word Adama. This is important because look, Adam's name is Adam. Adama, Adam. He's going to get made out of the ground. Adam, Adama. Fascinating. Hebrew's awesome. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Oh, man, that's awesome. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. So here's, here's some people's beef. They say, well, it says that he made the man, and then he made some trees. But if I'm reading Genesis 1 through 6, one, chapter 1, days 1 through 6, he makes the trees first, and then he makes the man. Well, which is it? This is our apologetics problem. Now, I, I, I get it. I see that. But here's the, here's the thing he's doing. He made the man, and now he's preparing a garden for the man. So trees are already around. He's preparing a particular and special place, and he's God, so he gets to do what? Trees. I don't know what that looks like, right? Like, 
But it's, but it's but you know what I mean? Like, you have to have, have the awe and wonder that God just makes. He just does. And it is. And it's so. And so here he is. He's made the man. And I said last week we would talk about this idea of the image of God. And the image of God, remember it from uh, back here in, in uh, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. I said we would talk about it. Because I think what we get here is we get an explanation of this, this, this imago day is what it's called, technically, which is just the Latin for image of God, which is just like a crazy to say image of God. What this image of God idea means, I think there's two pieces, and we'll see. One is form, and one is function. Right? God takes it, and, and again, we, we have to understand, I mean, you could look at this and say, well, that sounds kind of mythy. Mythy? Is that a word? I'll make it up. Mythy, it sounds kind of mythological. Well, why'd God make him out of the dirt? Because he's God and he can. He's God and he can. He could have made him any way he wanted, but he chooses to make him out of the dirt. Now, why? Why does he do that? I think there's a reason. I think this is the same reason we'll see in a second that he makes Eve from a rib. God could have just done the thing, the tree thing, right? Like, boop. Star tracking, and there's a man. I don't know, right? But instead, he, he does the act of forming the man. The, the thing that makes us image bearers of God is that we are formed. And this is Jeremiah's deal, right? Formed in my mother's womb. This is why we believe in a sanctity of life, in all human life, in all its forms, including the unborn, uh, at every stage. Because God is the one who's moving and weaving these things together. He's intimately involved in the creation of human. Even to this day, even as he's weaving together people who live in object rebellion against him, who, who don't come to him and the kindness he extends to them, in his grace and his mercy, he's still weaving them together. He still creates and he's creative and he makes a man out of dust. I think to demonstrate this God created, this God breathedness. It's, it's part of the imago, it's part of the image uh, that we are imaging God in that sense, that we are crafted by God himself in particular ways that demonstrate particular things about him, right? Dogs are cool. Dogs are not image bearers, right? Depending how you feel about rats or birds or whatever. They're cool, right? They're, they're neat. Living stuff's... I have a squirrel that hangs out in my backyard. I'm afraid he's going to get in my roof, and I don't like him, and he's my arch nemesis. And yet, <laughs> when, my, when my, my baby son sees him, he just thinks he's the coolest dog he's ever seen. And it's neat, because God's awesome, because God creates. And we're supposed to, as, as Romans 1 shows, just stand in the awe and the wonder of the things that he's made. And the, and the way that he makes things are so done in such a way that if we didn't have sin, if we didn't have our sin, we could look at anything he's made and say, wow. God did this all. This is amazing. We're marred, and we'll get there again next week. The hardest part about chapters 1, 2, and 3, they're so interwoven with one another. I have to hop back and hop forward and hop back and hop forward, and I'm already, you know, hopped up enough doing the Micro Machines Man thing enough trying to get through here because I'm stopping at the three verses, three words at the beginning. We have to move on. Okay, so there's this form that God has formed the man. I think that's true of the woman. He just chooses to do it from a rib, Right? There's, there's, this is part of the image of God. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. There's a distinctive here. Creature is an important word. There's a creator and there's a creature. There's a creator and there's a creature. You are creature. I am creature. He is creator. 
So if we, if we miss this stuff, these little words, and again, I know, I say it every week, and I'll keep saying it every week, please, please, please read your Bible slowly. This is a story about how God created human beings. You need to see who's at the center of this story. God. Then the Lord God formed the man of the, uh, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Boop. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant uh, in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you have these twin trees right in the middle, which we'll talk about extensively next week, uh, as they are sort of the central focus of, of the narrative uh, next week. Uh, but what I think we have here on one side, we have this tree that is uh, good for life. It, it, it demonstrates that these are, these are people, there's no death in the garden. And the tree has something to do with this life for the human being, as we'll see in three. Again, here's the layers. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, God's telling him not to do something, so he's not aware that there's something he shouldn't do. So what I think it is really about at its core is an independence from God, a self-determination, a, uh, an ability now is your job to decide right and wrong. And as we'll see next week, uh, they make the decision to, to get after it. But I have to keep going. A river flowed. Now, this is amazing too. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. Uh, uh, it is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Uh, Bedlam and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. Uh, it is uh, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Uh, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. If this is only myth, if he's not trying to record history, he's done a really poor job of trying to record historical things. There's these artifacts, if you will, uh, these rivers with names, gold and bedlam, uh, uh, all these different things that appear here in the book of Genesis. In, in fact, in Genesis 10 alone, there are four times as many of these kind of artifacts, things that, that harps and gold and this and that, th these things of human, four times more than the whole of the Quran. They are concerned, the author, Moses, is concerned with recording history. Why does he have this whole paragraph? Does he need this paragraph? No. He can keep going. But he's recording history, so he includes it. 15. Okay, now we get into the, uh, the function. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay. As a pastor, you always have to be sensitive to what's happening where you live. Uh, in the Puget Sound region, in the last, oh, I don't know, maybe five, probably five years, maybe ten, somewhere between five and ten, uh, there has been a, a movement and, and several very influential pastors, people who pastor here, uh, God bless them, I'm not trying to pick on them, and I'm not going to name anybody by name, but they've taken an idea that is first represented by John Calvin, then later Hodge, uh, not Calvin and Hobbes, but Calvin and Hodge, 
uh, great Presbyterian American thinker, uh, and has been most notably recorded and, and kind of thought about in terms of the image of God by a, a really, oh man, super genius, super awesome guy, uh, was the organist intern at one of the, we're part of a net church network called Three Strand. One of the guys in the network, his grandpa is like a, if you can be a world famous Orthodox Presbyterian pastor in the Midwest, uh, he is that. Uh, John Frame was his organist intern before he went and did his PhD in systematics at Cambridge, question mark, or Harvard, or one of those other kinds of schools that you say, wow, that sounds hard. Um, John Frame is a super genius, and he's super helpful, and he's written, uh, I mean, he's written everything from amazing apologetics books, Apologetics for the Glory of God, which I can't recommend enough, uh, but he's written an amazing systematic work that you should get and read. Uh, he and I differ only on one thing, uh, and he's a Presbyterian, so we have a difference on baptism. But other than that, he's a, just a super genius. Now, I say all this to say about John Frame that he's proposed this idea of what's called triperspectivalism. Now, his idea of triperspectivalism was sort of taken and used in a way that he hadn't intended. So triperspectivalism, and he'll have a footnote, I think, in his systematic where he says, so some days I think I'm on to something, and some days I think I'm being overly clever or worse, which I really appreciate as humility. But the guy sees uh, uh, triangles everywhere. He sees three things going together everywhere, like the Trinity, right? Okay, he sees them in a number of places that would include the image of God. Now, there are those who have reduced the idea of triperspectivalism here to the image of God, and I say all this to say because they then take this idea that we'll see of prophet, priest, and king, which you may or may not have heard, uh, and if you are maybe involved in some of that stuff that's happened uh, with the various churches in Puget Sound, some, you know, kind of across denominations and stuff, I don't know why we've done this, but we've taken prophet, priest, and king and turned it into a personality test. We say there's kingly people, and there's priestly people, and there's prophety people, and, and they do priestly, kingly, and prophety things. And some of you are sitting here saying, John Frame, prophet, priest, king, Calvin Hobbes, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. Okay? Let's just be clear. This is my job as a pastor, right? To say, if, if you start hearing words like triperspectivalism, or probably more likely prophet, priest, king, and you begin to tune out everything I'm saying, uh, this isn't John Frame's fault. Leave him alone. He didn't, he didn't do it. People took what they saw in John Frame and turned it into a personality test. And here's just a caveat. Be very leery of Christian personality tests. If you can take a test that says, oh, you're prophety. Prophety? I'm just making words up today. You have these prophet-type tendencies. You should do prophet-type things. Well, first, you've you got to check yourself because you're the one taking the test. Well, we can establish from the test that you think you're prophety, but are you? <laughs> Likewise, and these are probably less popular now, but were very popular, again, maybe a decade, maybe 15 years ago, but spiritual gifts tests. You can take a test, and you can establish what your spiritual gifts are from the test. Uh, honestly, every time I've, I've been asked to do one of those, I'll never do one of those again, um, he says, trying to not be a curmudgeon. Um, but, but these don't help, because you know, all a spiritual gifts test tells me is what you think about you, what you think your spiritual gifts are, and I can just ask you, right? What do you think your spiritual gifts are? Just tell me. Uh, but I have a test, and it's got some questions, and you can answer them. Okay, now I say all that to say I think Frame was right. I think there's this prophet, priest, king element here. But what happens is when it, this thing has been turned into something that it's not, 
and I'll show you what it is from the text and what it's not. So uh, if you've been through that particular thing, uh, king doesn't mean spreadsheet. King means kingdom. Priest doesn't mean biblical counselor. It means worshiper of the Lord God Almighty. Uh, prophet doesn't mean you yell at people and are a jerk. It means you proclaim the truth of God. Okay? So here we go, and I'll show them to you. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... So we'll stop right there. Human beings are supposed to be in relationship with God. We broke it. Part of the image bearer, you were created to relate to God in a way that's different than the squirrel in my backyard, right? That squirrel proclaims the glory of God, but you are, are given the ability to praise the Lord, that we're going to get up and we're going to sing to King Jesus because he's glorious and wonderful and holy and he's forgiven us for our sins. And together we stand up as a nation of priests and, and the church across the world today will stand up because it's Sunday and we should do this with our whole lives and everyone is going to stand up and worship King Jesus and we're all operating as priests in that moment as we relate to him. You were created to relate to God, that is part of your image. It gets broken in three, and we lose access to God in that sense. And Jesus comes and tears the curtain, and Jesus comes and bleeds and dies, and Jesus comes and pays the price for your sins, and Jesus Christ comes and makes you holy so that you can live in relationship with the God of the universe. Don't take a personality test. You are a priest. Peter says so, and so does Moses. Peter says it more explicitly than Moses. Moses is in, we infer it from Moses, but moving on. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, just right there, again, this is God who's in relationship with people. I mean, part of me is going to say, okay, good, let's sing. <laughs> He's related to us. The God who made everything cares. I mean, Jesus says wild things. The hairs on your head are numbered. I couldn't number the hairs on my head. My mom tried. I had lice as a kid and I had to pick them out, but she didn't know, right? You think it's funny. It happened. It was real. It was a real, real day there at Birchwood Elementary School in Bellingham, Washington. Um, now hear this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, okay, here we get the prophet piece. He's being given instruction by God, and as we'll see even in 3, that that instruction is to be relayed. Well, how does that manifest for us as New Testament people? The priest thing's easy. Worship Jesus. Okay, got it. So we could say, if we do the personality thing, well, he's the, he's the prophet, right? Because I got lights on me or something, right? Because I got a louder inside voice. Because <laughs> I lack an inside voice, right? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that if you want to be a preacher and you come into his office to go to his pastor's college, and you can't yell, go find a different job. Okay, I have the physical quality to be able to do it. But here's the thing. You are all prophets in the sense that you are all carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get to go from here and tell people that Jesus saves sinners from death to life. And you, as his ambassadors, get to carry this truth to our city that God might save as many as possible. It's what you've been drafted into, and it's a gift. 
Praise the Lord. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's our tree thing again. Uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18. We'll get there next week, I promise. Then the Lord said, It is not good. Wait, sorry. I missed the king. The king's awesome, too. So the king piece, which we all have as Christians, as image bearers of God, we're designed to create. We're designed, this command even, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we are given, as New Testament, you know, their, their job is to create godly culture, God-glorifying culture, and God-glorifying community. And that's true for us today. That our job as kingdom citizens is the extension of the kingdom. Well, what are, what are marks of a kingdom? This is always weird for us because we live in 2015 and we're Americans, right? Kingdom. I vote. Don't tread on me. This is, my, this is my spot. This is my kingdom, right? We don't know about being subjects of other kings, right? Um, so a kingdom has at least, if not more, marks, and one's that's got a king. Uh, I think this is the big, the failing of 20th century liberal Christian theology. There's a lot of talk about kingdom, but no talk about reverence for the king. There's a king, and his name is Jesus, and he's the king. Okay, check. Step one. Two, there's a people. There's a people in that kingdom, right? Hey, there's some people. Our king is Jesus. This is so helpful to understand what the elder's job is to do. The elder's job is not to be little kings. The elder's job is to be uh, people who point to the king and listen to the king and structure the church like the king says to structure the church, okay? We're kingdom people. That's what it means to be kingdom people. So you have a king, you have a kingdom, and you have a land, right? We're in exile. The New Testament says that again and again and again. Our, our land's coming. We're exiled subjects of the king. Um, Adam's not. Adam's a subject with a king who is God, who's given this garden to extend the kingdom as he works the garden. There it is, the image of God in form and function. He's created, and then he's to actually have functions of his uh, image of godness. Now, sin breaks all of these things, because now what are we about? My kingdom, right? I'm about my kingdom and what I can get and how I can be the top of king of the mountain. The point of being a Christian is not to be the king of the mountain, but to continue to say, say, Jesus should be the king of that mountain. Oh, yeah, he is, because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Sweet. Yes. Okay. Oh, man. Here we go. Verse 18. Uh, then the Lord God said it is uh, not good. First thing he said is not good, by the way. Uh, human beings are created to live in community. Uh, it is not good for the man, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is more kingdom stuff. He's doing kingdom work. He's being, uh, this is what, you know, we're going to use the fancy word. He's being the vice regent. He's not the king, but he's the prince. He's doing kingly stuff here. He's doing the king's work by naming everything because what did God do in chapter 1? Named everything. Day, night, whatever. And whatever the man called uh, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and the, uh, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Squirrels are cool. Squirrels are not community. Uh, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed in its place of the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made uh, into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Okay, so people, people love to think of all kinds of crazy things that this could possibly mean. And we just want to be careful in here. Because yes, it is highly theological, um, but anything that says something like, well, you know, you have to be married to truly properly image the, the, the image of God. Nope. Sorry, that's not what it says. Uh, that's not the sense we get from Genesis 1. That's not the sense we get from here. Uh, every human being is an image bearer of God, right? Uh, now, we're going to hear a lot about this relationship between the man and the woman, how that works out. Uh, but if you are single, you can image the image of God. That's, that's the deal, okay? Why do I think that? I think Jesus probably did a pretty good job imaging the image of God in his humanity, right? Paul, not Jesus, no, but probably did a pretty good job too. He was also single, by the way. Um, now, what's amazing about this, this reality, uh, I'll keep reading and we'll talk about how amazing it is. Um, then the man said, and, and as many, 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 many Hebrew scholars have pointed out, uh, when you see in your text, when you see this indent, I don't know if you can see my indent, but if you have a Bible open, you'll see a little indent. Um, what the translators here are letting you, cluing you into is this is poetry. Poetry is hard from Hebrew. One, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Usually when you see American poetry and it's rhyming, you're like, oh, it's poetry. Uh, no, it's a proverb. Uh, you know, whatever. Usually we get a sense, as, as English language people, when we're looking at a poem. Uh, for Hebrew, it's all structural. A line, B line, it's all structural. But what's amazing is whenever something really important happens, or I shouldn't say whenever, often when something really important happens, all of a sudden we get poetry. Uh, and, and this is poetry. And so they indent it so we know that he's about to give us poetry. This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, A line, B line. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I think the reason we have this again, God could have made her any way he wanted. But there's an intimacy here to the act of making the woman out of this rib, and I think it's beautiful. Uh, the other interesting thing is this idea of bone, though it's obviously literally a bone, there's a rib, uh, bone also has this, this connotation, flesh is just flesh, okay? Uh, but bone has this connotation of, it can also be a word that's used to talk about spirit, or, or someone's soul, or someone's inward parts. There's something about this act of making the woman from the man uh, where they complement each other, just as we saw in so much of Genesis. They, they're here to be there together. Uh, she's flesh and bone from his flesh and bone. And if you've been busy naming uh, reticulated gray squirrel, uh, North American black squirrel, uh, any more squirrels? Okay, next, uh, Arctic fox, you're white. Next, uh, red fox, go. Right? This is a good day. I mean, not only is this a woman, which is awesome, but it's another person. Like, just on that level, it's another person for starters. But even better, it's this woman that God's made to be his wife. And so he's got some poetry to say. At last, at last, not a squirrel, not a reticulated gray squirrel, not a coyote, not a polar bear. He didn't speak English, by the way, and they weren't called polar bears at the time. But you get the point. Uh, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
I mean, this is, I mean, you want to talk about just like the basics of what Christians believe about what marriage is. Here it is, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be, become one flesh. Uh, there's a beautiful thing that happens there in, in, the, in the wonderful thing of marriage that's uh, physical, emotional, spiritual. You actually move in with the person and you share your stuff. There's this coming together where two become one and become this wonderful picture of even how God operates in Trinity, I think. There's a lot of stuff happening here and how God has chosen to make human beings because he could have chosen to do it a lot of different ways. He chose to do it this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is what marriage is. And Jesus uses this exact quote to say what marriage is. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Because nothing's broken, and nothing's horrible, and nothing's nasty. It's just awesome. Right? We haven't broken anything yet, and everything is just good. And, and I think we have this. This is the apex of the complement structure that we got through Genesis 1. It's this literary stuff happening here. Day, night, land, sea, birds, critters. Are birds critters? Land critters, air critters. You know, th this, this creative act that comes to this wonderful compliment. And this is, I mean, you have to understand. So Moses is writing in the middle of the, like, 15th century B.C. It is not normal for someone in that culture to do what he's doing here. Do you see what's happening here? Men and women are equal but different. They have different roles. They have different jobs. They're made differently, and they're made to complement, to come together as one. Right? Again, this is going to be a place, and we saw this in 1 Peter when we were there a few weeks ago even. This is, this is where uh, Moses, in this case, is being contrary to his uh, cultural milieu, his, what he's living around. I mean, even if you read later, as we saw when we were doing 1 Peter, you know, Aristotle didn't think women were people. Not really. Not really people like men were people, right? What's really clear from this text and where he's going against the grain of, you know, 1450 B.C. And I think he's going against the grain. Why? God revealed truth. That's why. Because God goes against the grain. That men and women are both equal yet different. And in 2015, we're okay with equal, we're not okay with different. We're not okay with complementary. We're not okay with there being a difference between men and women. What's the difference between men and women? I don't, I don't know. At some point in time, I just scratched my head. I'm not sure what to say here. Boys and girls are different. I'm, <laughs> you know, like, we, we could have that longer conversation, but at some point in time, men and women are different. They're made to complement one another. They're given different jobs to do, and this is, the, this is what happens in marriage, and this is what happens even in the church, right? So this rubs wrong in 2015 because we're going to say they're different, and, and even just the idea that different roles doesn't equal different standing, different life, that, that's not what it equals, right? And in 2015, it rubs the wrong way because we're saying they're both equal, they're both human, they're both image bearers of God. So this is how God lays out this whole piece of humanity. If we don't understand this, we won't understand the rest of the text. Okay? This is, you know, in a sense we can extrapolate from here and see good news stuff. That we have God who reveals himself and we, we draw the line to Jesus and say, look, 
But honestly, just here in Genesis 2, they're just naked and unashamed. Everything's just good and right in the world. Now, the gospel is good news because we break everything. That's coming next week. And then the rest of the Bible is the retelling of the story. We broke everything. God fixes it. We break everything. God fixes it. Um, But I think several things we need to see from this text if we're going to understand the Bible. Number one, this was not, this is not a history or a text with human beings at the center. This is God at the center. This is God who is creating. This is God who is making. We are creature. He is creator. Right? And you also understand this didn't happen because God was lacking anything. God didn't make you or pick you because he was lonely. God didn't need humans to even express his glory or his goodness or his holiness. Christians are often made fun of by Muslims because we believe in the Trinity. Well, here's the difference between a singular monotheistic conception of God and the Trinity. Trinity lacks nothing, including the expression of his own characteristics and acknowledgement of those characteristics within himself. What do I mean by that? God didn't need to create to love. God, God didn't need to create to reveal his glory. He, wasn't, he literally wasn't lacking absolutely nothing, 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 nothing. He didn't need anything. So all of this, all of this creation is an overflow of his grace. God wasn't sitting around saying, geez, I'm lonely. If only I had someone to watch the office with, everything would be great in the world. He didn't. He created out of his grace. This is a story about God who lacks nothing. And this this reality that we see here in Genesis 2 and and really in Genesis 1 as well uh, echoes into the rest of Scripture. And when we understand this, it helps us understand what these other texts mean and how these actually, how this story, how this reality applies to our life, right? Here we go. Number one, this is God's story, not ours. If you go with me, these aren't going to be up there, so I'll say them twice. And then if you miss them, then you fail the Bible memory challenge. No, you don't. I'm joking. Uh, If you need these, uh, I can email them to you or you can grab them afterwards. Number one, uh, five things I want us to see from this text. Number one, this is God's story, not ours. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm in 1 Corinthians, I'm in chapter 8, and I'm starting in verse 4, and we are applying this reality as Paul is talking about food offered to idols. Verse 4 says this, Uh, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's not a God. And that there is no God, capital G, God but one. There is no God but our God. is. He's quoting the Hebrew Bible here. Uh, there is one God, God of the Bible. For although, now this is also important for us as Seattleites, and I'll tell you why in a second. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods. Now, there is no quotation mark in the Greek, but it's still helpful. There are many gods and lords. If you're in the ESV, there's quotation marks around gods and lords. Um, Yet, for us, there is one God. What do I think he's after here when he's talking about this? Um, Not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's pretty clear there's this belief, yeah, supernatural things happen, right? We don't need to take a modernist approach. And this is particularly relevant for those of us who live here in Seattle. Why? Because many of the people I'm sharing the gospel with say, 
well, listen, I have had literally these spiritual experiences that don't have anything to do with Jesus, and they validate the fact that I'm a pluralistic person, and people can have any access to God in any way they want. Maybe that's just my uh, evangelism field, but that might be yours too, uh, including quite fantastic experiences. Now, we're left with one of two things. We can say that quite fantastic experience you had had nothing to do with anything. This has actually been quite damaging as people have uh, done ministry in places like Africa where, you know, honestly, weird, I don't know how to say it, other than weird stuff happens. Snakes don't talk every day, but sometimes weird stuff happens. And so instead of saying, well, that's weird and that didn't happen because I'm a modern person and that's not real, completely invalidating their spiritual experience. I think from the text, we can say, well, yeah, there are these things called demons. They're malevolent, evil forces. If they don't love Jesus, they're against the Lord. And yeah, they're behind stuff. And sometimes weird stuff happens. Uh, in fact, it seems Paul and elsewhere is going to indicate, and even these pretend fake deities that people like Isaiah are even willing to say, so you climb up a tree, you cut the tree down, you use half of the wood to make a little pretend God, and you use half the wood to cook the meat, then you eat the meat and worship the pretend God from the meat with the meat that you cooked with the thing that you made the pretend God out of? That's ridiculous. You're correct, Isaiah. Thank you. Um, he's, he's a lot uh, punchier when he says it, too, than I am. Uh, however, there are real spiritual experiences. There are gods, quote-unquote, little g, gods and lords. They're not gods. God is not the god of these gods. There's not a pantheon of gods. These are demons pretending to be gods. Uh, demons will give people any spiritual experience they want as long as they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan will, Satan will give you whatever you want as long as you walk away from Jesus. He doesn't care. He, he knows the score. He just wants you not to love Jesus. And, and so I think it's not unreasonable to say, yeah, you may have had a spiritual experience there. But let me interpret that spiritual experience for you. Uh, yet, now here's what I was actually after, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all, from whom all uh, are all things and for whom we exist, the one Lord uh, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is God's story. God made everything. Everything's for God. Now, if you don't like God, that doesn't sound very awesome. But if you love God, this is really good news. I'll keep going. Number two, God needs nothing. Also good news for us. Here's what I mean. Uh, God needs nothing. We're in Romans. We're in chapter uh, 11, starting in 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? God, what are you doing? You don't know, but he does. Don't worry. Or who has been his counselor? Because he doesn't need you to tell him how he should fix the problem. Or who, listen, listen, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. Why is this good news for us? This is, this is, this is just echoing right out of what we already saw in Genesis, right? Why is this good news for us? Because the gospel is that Jesus saves not that Jesus saves you if you're awesome. The gospel is not Jesus will save you if you put on your Sunday best and uh, start shaping up your life. The gospel is in your depravity and in your mess and in your sin, 
Jesus saves and cleanses and makes right. Turn from your sin, turn to him. You have nothing to offer him but empty hands. And we only don't like that when we say, well, I don't like it that my hands are empty. And then the more you get to know Jesus, you're like, yeah, my hands are pretty empty. And yet God saved me with these very, very empty hands. They might not even be empty. Here's my sin. Here's all my wrongdoing. Here's all my injustice. Here's all my right things that I've done for wrong reasons. Here's all my idolatry. Here's all my nastiness. Here's all my stuff. And Jesus takes it and puts it on his cross and bleeds and dies to wash you clean from your sin. You have no gift to offer him. Now, the good news is when we belong to him, we can actually live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to him. That's available to every single Christian person to be empowered to live. So it's, it's not just here's your sin part. The good news here then is that all of a sudden everything I do to glorify God then isn't to keep me in his good graces. I'm doing all the things I'm doing in response to the fact that I said, all I have is this. And he put that on his cross and made me right with him. Well, now I get to live in response to that, and I'm free to do that, not so he'll love me, but because he's loved me. And all of a sudden my whole life in the gospel is a response to his glory and his goodness and his holiness and to his cross. Number four, we see this in Genesis 1. We see this explained further as we go on, that God created us for a purpose. And honestly, he's not afraid to tell us how we're supposed to live. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you want. Ephesians, no, pardon me, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Oh, this is good. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Life goes on. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now listen to this. This is all his, his gratuitous blessing upon us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Before he did the Genesis 1 and 2 thing in his grace and mercy and foresight chose you to be saved for his glory and for your joy. Uh, predestined, uh, but, but, but before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We live holy lives now. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? To the purpose of his will. So what is it? Just kind of keep that in your mind. According to the purpose of your will of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There it is. So I am on the old side of the millennial thing, right? I'm on the old side of that. But there's two things that are seen that I see with my peers and my little brothers, so to speak, and little sisters, you know, however you want to say that, people coming after me. Uh, Amongst non-Christians, there's an apathy. What is the purpose of life? Who cares? Okay. Well, that means that my gospel message to you is to show you there's a purpose to life, and it'll actually empower you to live a really awesome, wonderful life. His name's Jesus. But the thing I've seen with my peers and those younger than me, often in Christian circles, is a sense that people sit around saying, if someone would just, if God, not just someone, God, if God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. Praise the Lord. That is a great and wonderful thing to say. He may give you special instruction. He, he may have Papua New Guinea for you. He may have 
church planting in Iran. He, he may have planting a church. He may have things. But what I do know is this. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. There is a purpose to your life. It is to worship and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best way we do that is by listening to his word and doing what he says. Should I be an engineer or an architect? I don't know. God does know. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given a new heart. You're reading your Bible. You're praying your guts out. You're asking what he thinks. And maybe, maybe you might not hear, architect. Unless I'm sitting behind you going, architect. Because that's not necessarily how God even talks. We even imagine how we think God should talk to us. And, and I, I think God speaks. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm saying sometimes you read the Bible, you pray, you ask, and you have to choose. And God loves you. And, and, and God, as you're praying your guts out, you're reading your Bible, you're, you're asking him in prayer, you're considering it in community, you're operating out of your new heart, your new desires, and the Holy Spirit, you choose architect, God's not going to punish you for choosing architect. I said engineer, dang it. Because that's not how he operates. He loves you. He loves you, right? So you mean to tell me that you're earnestly, passionately seeking God's face and wisdom in these things, and then he leaves it up to you all of a sudden, like everything else he does in your salvation, and you pick architect, and he's going to punish you for it? Sorry. That's not what he wants for you. You know what I know that he does want for you? You live to the praise of his glorious grace. I think that's probably enough with Ephesians. I could keep going. Two more, and then we'll, we'll be done. Uh, God defines us. God defines Adam. He defines Eve. He defines us. He defines the purpose of our life. If you go with me to Acts chapter six, uh, 17, I'll start in 23. I'm just going to read it really fast, and then we'll keep going. Uh, for as I, uh, this is Paul, and he's in Acts, and he's preaching the gospel on uh, the Aragopolis for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Oh, that's not where I wanted to be. 26. Um, no, no, 25. 24, there we go. Acts 17, 24. Now, listen, this is Genesis, right? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, just like Adam, just like Eve. And he made from one man every nation, his name's Adam, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having what? Determining a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God has picked both the day you were born and the day you will die. We, as Americans in 2015, love self-determination. Who am I going to be this week? How will Hot Topic help me get there? Right? How will I go in and change everything I do and be new? How, how can I have that fast fashion, total makeover, and I'm just going to be a different person next week? Well, you're not a different person because no matter where you go, there you are. You just happen to be wearing a different shirt. We seek culture. We seek friends. We seek any number of things to define us. Adam was defined by God. In Christ, we're defined by God. 
And, and by the way, that's what he does, right? We, we need to seek him and his face in that definition. Again, we have, we have marred that with our sin, but he's not afraid to tell us <coughs> uh, how we are to live. And by the way, that doesn't, I, I mean, I have to say this enough, but I'll say it and say it and say it. That doesn't mean picking some Christian person and then trying to be them. It means listening to the Lord God Almighty and seeing who he wants you to be. And what he wants you to do. Because he's got the hairs on your head numbered. He gave you a different fingerprint for a reason. Because it glorifies him for you to be you. For you to be you, honoring him with everything you have and responding to his gospel with your unique gifting, personality, preferences, and all those things as they come under the rule and reign of King Jesus for his glory. He, if he wanted the church to be homogenous, the book of Revelation picture would not be every tribe and tongue. The picture would be some homogenous group. It doesn't glorify him. Because he's plucking people out. That's why, he said, why Paul says, be as you were when you were saved. He's plucking people out from all over the world. And he's been doing this from history to show that he's doing this work of plucking people out and saving them. Now, hey, things change. You become a Christian and things change. Maybe there's stuff you don't do anymore. And even your non-Christian friends might even say, well, you always used to do this thing with us. Why don't you do that anymore? You've changed so much. I hope so. I hope so. The, the point of your life then isn't even to be, how can I be the coolest punk rock Christian kid around? That's not the point. A lot of people, friends, make a lot of money on Christian people trying to make them feel unique and accepted in society. What I'm saying is you got to be you you got to be the you that God created you to be, the saved, redeemed version of you for his glory, enjoying with absolutely everything you've got. Which can include punk rock music, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't just mean being the sort of pseudo-sanctified version of your old self, being new, being who you are, being who he made you, and who he's changing you to be. Uh, and finally, the most beautiful thing about all this is when we actually get the point, we get the point. When you actually get the point of your life in Christ, the greatest gift there is you get the point of your life in Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This is after that thing I just read a minute ago from 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. We're back to that idea again, aren't we? How do we test what's the will of God? He's given it to you. It's in your hands. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Know what God says. So here it is. Our, our life then is about spiritual worship. Our whole life then is responding to the reality of the creator God of the universe. We broke it. He fixed it. Sent his son to save us. And our whole life is lived in response to that glorious truth. The point of your life is to glorify God with absolutely everything you've got. The way you glorify God with everything you've got is by enjoying him with absolutely everything you've got. 
by getting after him with absolutely everything you've got, by him being the king and the ruler of your life and your whole life being defined and about him. That was the point of Adam's life. That is the point of your life. Now, if you don't know Jesus, this is the truth. He's come to save you from your sins. You don't have to look to the world to see who you're supposed to be. You look to Christ, and he'll save you. You, you can't bring him a gift, and you can't do this yourself. You need to be saved. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin, and you turn to him, and you repent and turn to God and cry out to him. And if you are a Christian, I'm begging you, live your life for his glory. Live your life to enjoy him. Be defined by him. He doesn't, you don't owe him anything. You can't pay him back. I mean, in a sense, you owe him everything, but you can't pay him back any of it, right? So live that whole life in response to who he is. Make your whole being and essence in life about enjoying this God who's made you to be in relationship with him, to know him. And it is a gift, and it is a free gift to you from him through his cross. We're going to transition now to communion, and we're going to remember that reality his body broken and blood shed for us to save his broken creation. Um, when we do this as Christians, we, we consider our sin before we, we take of this cup. and we, we repent of our sin and we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. Uh, but then when we come and we take of this cup, we come to proclaim and to celebrate that Jesus is the king who saved us from our sins. And so when we do this, we do this as a celebration because we've done our repentance and you're forgiven and you've got life. And so when you're ready, we'll, you can stand up and you can take this. There's gluten-free on the far side. There's regular bread in the middle. There's juice and there's wine in a basket for the offering. Um, in a minute, I'll pray and the band will come back out and we're going to celebrate what God has done uh, in his creation through his son. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, you made us. We didn't make you. You don't need us, we need you. Lord, we have sinned, and you have sent your son. We've been given life, help us to live it. Help us to know you, to love you, to enjoy you, to glorify you, to make much of your name. Help us, Jesus, to live our life with you as the point, as you as the center, because you're the creator of everything, and you're the redeemer of our lives. Lord, Reveal yourself to us and help us to see you for who you are and help us to live our whole life in response to your glory and to your grace and to your mercy as people have been made new, as new creations with new life in you. Uh, Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.